0: Adrenaline is high for this loaded question preaching series. Our prayer is that the conversations we have here in the room end up this week out in Greenwood Village and Highlands Ranch and Littleton and Lakewood and Green Mountain and Denver as uh, the Spirit prompts you into conversations that uh, some of these questions I'm sure you encounter. The other reason we've been looking forward to this series is we're doing something we haven't done in a long time. And that is... We want you to participate in this sermon, uh, literally, by texting questions during the sermon. Pull out your cell phone, and uh, the instructions are on the screen, and at various points, you have a question about anything that's being said, Um, text it. In the back, they'll uh, come up and compile the questions, and then we're going to leave five to ten minutes at the end of the sermon to actually have some Q&A and try to answer those questions so, uh, we did this the first two services. We got some good response, but I know this is kind of new technology for boomers. So, boomers, if you're out there and you really have a question, you want to know how to do this, just find an under 40 sitting near you. <laughs> the first question loaded Is Jesus the only way to God? Jesus answers. We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The word of the Lord. Now, um, a lot of people have a lot of questions and proverb, proverb, problems with Christianity. Some think that it's boring. Quite frankly, you could be a castaway talking to a volleyball on a Pacific island for 20 years, get rescued, show up at a worship service, and still be able to predict the order of worship. Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Treasure Island, said, I have been to church today and I'm not depressed. Or the Supreme Court jurist, Oliver Wendell Holmes, I might have entered the ministry of certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. <laughs> One of the great blunders of the church is to make gospel joy dull. Others say Christianity, uh, untrue. I have serious intellectual objections. Yeah, there's some wise saying, there's some interesting stories, but I can't buy it. It's scientifically impossible in places, it's historical, it's unreliable in places, and it's culturally regressive in places. I can't take it literally. I can't buy it. It's not true. Third objection you often hear is it's irrelevant. I mean, really. What does anything that happened 2,000 years ago and 5,000 miles away under palm trees and on camels in Palestine have to do with me here in America on airplanes and under iPhones? I just don't see how it connects. But arguably, the most common objection to Christianity is, is exclusivity. You walk down the religious section at Barnes and Nobles, you see many books advocating that all religions lead to God and that no one religion should be exclusive. It's one of the key gripes about Christianity. Tim Keller was uh, on a panel. He used to be a pastor in New York City He was on a panel with a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and uh, him, a Presbyterian pastor, a Christian. And um, they were having an intelligent, kind, and respectful conversation. And uh, then they reached a point just before they ended and before the questions and answers where they all decided to put up a statement that said, On this, we all agree. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, then Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or prophet, then Christians fail in a serious way. To love God as God really is. In other words, between these three major world religions, there are irreconcilable differences. Well, that pushed a button among the college student audience. Keller continues, several of the students were quite disturbed by this. One student insisted that what mattered was to believe in God, was to believe in God and to be a loving person yourself. To insist that one faith has a better grasp of the truth than others was intolerant. Another student looked at us clerics and said in frustration, we will never come to know peace on earth if religious leaders keep on making such exclusive claims. Do you know what? The kid is right. The leading cause of global conflict is world religions and their claims of exclusivity. So what do we do? How do we mitigate claims of exclusivity? Well, in a moment, I'm going to give you the two most common ways that our American culture here in the West tries to mitigate exclusive religious claims, how we respond to them. And then after that, I'd like to present an alternative third way. In fact, an exclusive claim that I believe, if taken into the heart, can produce inclusive behavior. So stay with us till we get there. Let me just say that for this sermon, I've had a ton of help. I have stolen freely from two main sources which you need to be familiar with. The first is Timothy Keller and The Reason for God. As you think about any kind of loaded question about the Christian faith, that's a great book that should be on your shelf. I have it right next to my desk and I pull it down often. Highly recommend Tim Keller and The Reason for God. And then James Edwards, who's a New Testament scholar up at Whitworth College in Washington, he's written this great book called Is Jesus the Only Savior. So both of these books I highly recommend, and much of what you'll be hearing comes today from them. All right, how do we mitigate conflict caused by religious exclusivity? Here's the first cultural response. It's simple. Get rid of religion. Over the last decades, in college classrooms, among the academic elites, and also in pop culture, among the media elites, this has been a driving force to weaken religion until it finally disappears. The thinking behind it is this. If we keep evolving as a race and as, as human beings, it, um, we will eventually outgrow the need for superstitious things like religious. We'll be able to control our environment, be able to can you know, control our happiness, and we won't need crutches like religion. What do you think? Do you think we will outgrow religion? It's an interesting question. Let me just give a quick pulse as to where we are on that question. Philip Jenkins teaches at Baylor University. He's a history professor, and he studies the world religions. And in his data and research, he says that all the major world religions continue to grow, but the growth of Christianity in the last hundred years has been explosive. Do you know that today there are six times more Anglican Christians in Nigeria than in the United States? Did you know that there are more Presbyterians in Ghana, Africa, than there are in the United States and Scotland, the homeland, combined? Do you know that in the last hundred years in Korea, the population has gone from 1% Christian to over 40% Christian? And do you know that right now, the same thing is happening in China, which will have consequential impact on world history. Even though governments in places like China and parts of Korea have tried to pressure down on Christianity and inhibit its growth, it seems that when you press down on Christianity, it only makes a robust form. I'd like to ask why. What is it about that kind of faith that seems to be unstoppable? Paul, writing in Romans chapter 1, talks about religion this way. For since the creation of the the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul is asserting here that religious belief is not like political opinion or intellectual ideas that you can just work through, change, and discard as needed. Religious belief is deeper because it's tapped into a transcendent realm that human beings sense and want to be connected to every human being worships. Now, it may not be a god at the center of their existence, but they worship something as an ultimate concern and build their lives around it. Religion is indelible in the human heart. It's unavoidable. Perhaps because being made by a god, we are imagers of him. But there is a transcendent realm where religious belief comes from, and therefore, even though you press down hard on it, it only seems to keep growing, and in some places, explode. So, that leads us to cultural idea number two, how to uh, eliminate religious conflict because of exclusive religious statements, and that would be this, confine religion to the private realm. Leave it at home. Don't bring it out into the public square. Usually, it comes from a statement like this where uh, we're trying to get everyone in society to agree on two things. First, all religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. And therefore, you should not bring your religion into the public square to force it on anybody. So we'll leave that up there for a minute. And I just want to unpack maybe some pushback against some of these. These are very common statements in our culture. Let's start with the low-hanging fruit. There are those who say all religions basically teach the same thing. We could probably dissolve some of that in about 30 seconds. You ready? Buddhism says there's no God. Hinduism says there's a thousand gods. Judaism says there's one God. Christianity says there's one God in three persons. Those are not the same things. Those are very different things. That was the low hanging fruit. What about this other statement? And here's, I think, where more people land and are comfortable saying, all religions are equally valid. You'll hear it. I once heard an Indian uh, from from India, a Hindu, uh, say that all religions are like ladders that lead to the same rooftop where you meet God. And I once read where Oprah, America's pastor, said, the only thing about religion that's true is that there's no one right religion. All religions are equally valid. What do you think about that? Now, I think what people are trying to say with that statement is that every religion has a piece of truth. And even if you get that one religion and that one piece of truth, that is probably enough to get you up a ladder and onto a rooftop where you will meet God. All religions have a part of the truth. Now, you'll often hear it illustrated by an illustration that I actually heard in the late 70s when I was in high school. I was on the campus of Penn State University, which makes this a holy illustration. <laughs> a speaker named Josh McDowell, some of you might remember Josh McDowell was debating an atheist professor on the Penn State faculty. And the atheist professor suggested this illustration. Have you heard of it? Of an elephant and the three blind men? Let me unpack it a little bit, see if you've heard this before. The elephant represents truth, all truth, all religions. Truth, all truth, that's the elephant. The three blind men represent world religions. So the first blind man, or world religion, comes up to the elephant, and let's just say it's a very docile elephant that would just stand there and let you touch it. First, and he grabs the trunk, and he says, ah, the elephant. Truth is like very fluid and flexible and long and skinny truth is like a snake and then the second blind man walks up another religion and grabs a hold of its leg and says no no elephant truth is like round and thick truth is like a tree trunk and then the third blind man just walks up and bumps his head on the elephant's stomach says no no the elephant the elephant is flat and wide and huge elephant is like truth is like a wall And everyone says, oh, yes, yes. Do you see it? Like all the world religions have a part of the truth. Do you get it? I don't. (laughs) It doesn't work. Do you know why? The only way that illustration makes sense is if the one who's telling it knows what an elephant looks like and isn't blind. The only way that a person could say every world religion has a piece of the truth is if that they actually know what all truth looks like. Which makes them making a superior claim to have knowledge that no one else has. So it comes across as a humble statement, all religions are equally valued, when in realistic, it's an imperialistic, arrogant statement that says, I know what the elephant looks like and you don't. The point, all religious belief is exclusive. Even though you make a statement like all religions are equally valid, it says you know something about the whole piece of truth that no one else seems to know. Let me say it this way. It is no more exclusive to say one religion is true than it is to say there's only one way to look at religion. Both of those are exclusive. All religious belief is exclusive. Truth claims. Now, that leads to the second uh, statement about, well, What we really need to do, since all religions are equally valid, is that we just need to leave our religion at home. And when we go out into the public square, let's roll up our sleeves, let's get to work on the things that are really wrong with our society, like education and poverty and the opioid crisis and all the things that are wrong, the breakdown of the family. Let's roll up our sleeves, leave our religion out of it, and fix these things. Have you heard that? You're going to hear that a lot this fall, 2018, from our politicians. Here's the problem. That kind of thinking does not understand what religion really is. Religion is not just going to church on Sundays. It's not just your religious practices. Religion, well, religion comes from the Latin. It means religare. It means to rebind. Religion is a set of answers to big questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What happens when I die? Religion answers all of those questions and whether or not you believe in a God, you still believe in a story that answers those questions. Every person is religious in the sense that they're trying to answer those questions by faith assumptions. You have not lived one moment of your existence without faith in a story that explains reality. And every person lives by face in their story. And I'm submitting that it's impossible to live those at home when you go into the public square. Let me illustrate. Let's say you're invited to a round table. The discussion is the breakdown of the family. Let's talk about marriage and divorce and how we can maybe lower the divorce rate and increase the marriage rate and have less family breakdown. Okay, everyone roll up your sleeve. Remember, nothing religious, nothing religious, just work. First question, What's the purpose of marriage? Hmm. What is the purpose of marriage? Marriage. <laughs> In our enlightened Western culture, the purpose of marriage is happiness. You get married to get happy. In our culture, we elevate the individual and the individual's flourishing above everything else. So if we want an individual to flourish, and if they're in a marriage that's not making them happy, then divorce should be easier. Right? from a more traditional background and culture? No, no, the highest value is not that the individual flourishes, but that the family flourishes. Children and old parents, marriages need to stay together to take care of children and parents. So what matters is that the family flourishes. So divorce should be harder to attain. Do you see the point? You cannot leave your religious beliefs at home. Your religious beliefs are you. And every significant question about education, poverty, the breakdown of the family, taps into your religious beliefs and you can't leave them at home. So what we're saying is that every person has their view on what reality is and means, and that every person has their exclusive religious beliefs. The problem is not that every person has religious beliefs. The problem is, is there any set of religious beliefs, exclusive religious beliefs, that can produce inclusive behavior? Let me say that again, that was a mouthful that even I had trouble saying. The problem is not that people have exclusive religious beliefs, why? Everyone has exclusive religious beliefs. The problem, the question is, is there any set of exclusive religious beliefs that can produce inclusive behavior? I submit to you the third alternative. It's not going to surprise you. Christianity. And let me tell you why. It's because of the unique features of Christianity. The first one is the origin of the founder, Jesus. He's God. In our text, it says that Jesus came from the Father He's preparing a place for us with the Father. He's going to come back and take us to the Father. All of that is while he was here with us. All of it implies in the text that Jesus was somewhere before he came here. Where was he? Well, he was God, the Son of God, second person of the Trinity. The origin of the founder is that Jesus is God. That makes Christianity unique from any other world religion where their founders, sorry for the bluntness, are bones in a box. Jesus is God, he's Lord. That's the exclusive claim. The second unique feature of Christianity is that not only is Jesus God, but he's also In the flesh, in 1 John chapter 1. I'll let you read it, but it talks about Jesus' physicality. Jesus came to us in a body. Jesus rose from the dead in a body. Jesus is coming again in a body to save every other body, and our final existence will be a a reality where the physical existence has been redeemed. The new heavens and the new earth are coming here, and we will experience an existence in eternity like we do now, in a body. Jesus' purpose is to redeem a physical existence. Now, that is unlike any other religion. In the Eastern world, the body is an illusion. Find nirvana. Escape it. In most Western religions, the body is real, but it's evil. You gotta get out of it, whether by death, whether by experience, whether by morality. Just get to heaven, where you'll have paradise. Christianity says no. Paradise is in a body here, after all things. It's unique. And then lastly, what makes Christianity unique is the method. In most world religions... The method of salvation is that you do your best to love God, love your neighbor, hope God is watching, and that it's good enough. Christianity says, no, it doesn't depend on what you do, it depends on what Jesus does. It doesn't depend on your performance, it depends on Jesus' performance. What you need to do is tell God you can't do it on your own and receive the life Jesus lived for you, receive the death Jesus died for you. In other words, the method of salvation in Christianity is grace. Radical, wholesome, robust, grace. You can't do it. He did it. And you receive grace. Those things make Christianity unique. But you're saying, okay, Larry, I see that. But how do those exclusive beliefs about Christianity produce inclusive behavior? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) Stay with me. Let's walk through them again. The method of grace produces humility. You see, if religion is about you and performing, that means it's the slippery slope in the human heart that says I have the truth, I'm working hard, I look down my nose at you, I'm better than you. I have it, you don't. That's religious superiority. That's a source of conflict. But Christianity is totally and radically different from that, why? Because Christianity says you are not good enough you are not smart enough. And doggone it, obligatory cultural reference, Stuart Smalley, Saturday Night Live. God still loves you. You can't do it. God has done it. And the way you get what God has done is you say, you can't do it. And you confess your brokenness and admit you're a sinner. The point, the gospel Humbles you. And when you're humble, you are radically approachable. Secondly, Jesus' purpose leads you to serving the world. If the purpose is not, as other world religions say, to escape the world and all this evil, but rather to prepare this world now for what's coming, a future existence in a physical body in a physical existence that in a kingdom that's already broken into this world when Jesus came the first time. And it's going to be coming again in its fullness. And our mission is to walk around in this world and demonstrate and display and pray the kingdom of up there, down here, by being a signpost of everyone watching us saying, this is what's coming, this is what's coming, what does that do? The gospel compels us to serve the world, especially those who believe differently than we do. In other words, it makes us radically engaged with everyone around us, and thirdly, Jesus' origin leads to the inclusion. Now, this would be the one where you say, aha, this is self-righteousness right here because you get to say to all the other religions, aha, our founder's God, your founder's dead, huh? (laughs) It didn't, it didn't. In the Greco-Roman world from which Christianity was launched, the exclusive claim was Jesus is Lord now you would have thought if any culture in society would have survived, it would have been Rome because Rome was a pluralistic culture. Rome had many gods. The saying in Rome was you have your God and I have my God. Sound familiar? You have your religion, I have my religion. It didn't work in Rome, why? Because even though Rome had this tolerant approach, they still could not figure out how to get rich people to love poor people, and how to have poor people trust rich people. And do you know when this became very clear? In the earliest days, or the late days of the Roman Empire, the earliest days of the Christian church, how did the church explode? Well, this way. Plagues would hit the cities in the ancient world, plagues. And people would be dying. Do you know who the first people to leave were? The wealthy and the powerful. Why? Because they could. Do you know who the people who stayed were? The Christians. Not at risk of life, but at cost of life. And they stayed. And people saw that and said, I want to be a part of that. And the church exploded. You can read about all of this in The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. It launched in a Greco-Roman culture, a pluralistic culture, but its exclusive claim made their behavior inclusive. And it also launched from a Jewish culture and the Jews didn't mix races. But Christianity sent their chief apostle, the apostle Paul, who was a Jew, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And everywhere you read in the New Testament, you have Gentile names and Jewish names. Listen, what I'm suggesting is this. There is no other exclusive faith claim that, like Jesus is Lord that has produced the inclusive behavior throughout history that has happened in the church. The behavior in the church transcends race and it transcends socioeconomic status. And it's still doing it today around the world. Have we made mistakes? Yes, we've made mistakes. We've been arrogant. We've been superior. We've been hypocritical. But that's because we haven't learned to live it as we should yet. And we're always working on that. But I'm suggesting that the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, Jesus as Lord, is what can produce inclusive behavior. Why? it all boils down to this. When the center of your religion and the center of all reality is the Son of God on a cross loving people who didn't love him, that explodes in a human heart. So the gospel makes you humble, the gospel makes you serving, and the gospel makes you love. So, for those of us in the room who are believers and walked in this room already believing this, what does God want for you right now? Simply this believe it more. Believe it more, more deeply. Let me ask you evaluate your life. Are you humble? Are you serving and are you loving? Are you radically approachable, radically engaged in the world around you and willing to risk your life to love others? Those of you that may be hearing this for the first time, the question for you is, is there any reason seeing the beauty of The compelling beauty of Jesus Christ, a drum major, as Martin Luther King called him, the drum major of peace. Is there any reason for you not to give allegiance to Jesus Christ? And I'm exhorting you to simply say, Jesus, I want that. I want you. I'm yours. I'm yours. Amen. Means yes. Now we'd like to invite the scholars up. Paul and Nick, would you welcome the scholars? I'm sure we have some good questions, and we'll do our best. We did.
1: Yeah, a lot of good questions came in. Hopefully, we can uh, try to hit a few of them. We compiled some um, on the screens for you guys. Uh, There's probably going to be some that we just won't be able to get to today. But the first one, um, this has actually come up in several of the services, but what about Hindu, Muslim, and Buddhists? And then in addition to that, um, people have specific questions about Judaism as well. Um, Are they still the people of God, chosen people, and how all that works? So.
2: I'll go after this and uh, what we've been doing is I've been asking some and then Larry's been correcting them so (laughs) we kind of so in the end you get a pretty good answer but we'll start with me. Um, This is really kind of at the heart of the question because what we're the assumption behind that is that if a person is really sincere and really good then they should go to heaven. And what Larry's just laid out is the mechanism that gets us to heaven or in a relationship with God is not our goodness or our sincerity. What gets us to God is Jesus' death on the cross, all right? And behind that is this notion that when it comes to religious truth, sincerity should count, right? Sincerity doesn't count in other areas of truth. I don't care if my doctor is sincere, sincere. I want him to be right. Right? But we'll let people get by with sincerity when it comes in the religious realm. Well, just as sincerity isn't what determines truth in non-religious areas, sincerity doesn't determine truth in religious areas. So you can be a sincere Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, but that is not what saves you. What saves you, what gets you in a relationship with God is what Jesus has done on the cross. So. We would say that if you're not connected to Jesus, then you're disconnected. And if you die disconnected to Jesus, you're disconnected for eternity. So you have to somehow connect yourself to what Jesus has done. And I
0: would come at this from the practical side. What about Hindu, Muslim, Buddhists? We engage them with humility, grace, and love. We listen to them. We understand their worldview, their story, where they're coming from. And then, hopefully, earning kind of a right to speak some into their lives, we get the opportunity to share where we're coming from and, uh, and our faith. But we love them and we engage them.
1: The next question um, was, what about people who have never heard? Um, and the person who texted this in actually wanted to know, so prior to Jesus, what about those people? And then what about the people currently who don't ever hear the name Jesus? How do we answer that? Yeah, I'll, I'll go again, and then you can talk about the...
2: I'll fix it. Yeah, thank yeah. you.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: that, that's kind of how we go through life around Waterstone. <laughs> uh, um, when we say that Jesus is the way to God or the only way to God, we, we sometimes get confused what we mean by that. What we're saying in that is that the mechanism by which people are saved is Christ's atonement. All right? But there are people who have never heard of Jesus or even understand that that's the mechanism that are still saved. For example, Abraham in the Old Testament. How was Abraham saved? He threw his trust on God. Did he understand the mechanism of atonement? Did he even know who Jesus was? No. What connected him to the work that Jesus did was his trust in this God, this idea that I can't save myself, so I'm going to throw myself on God's mercy. So that connected him, but what actually ultimately saved him was the work of Christ on the cross. So there are people, I think, who because of general revelation or special revelation, some people have had visions, that connect with that. They throw themselves on the mercy of God. They don't understand all the mechanics of Jesus and what he's done, but because they're trusting in God and not themselves, I think there's a good shot that they're believers and saved. And definitely everybody in the Old Testament was saved by the same way. Nobody in all the scripture is saved by their works. Those who are saved are saved because of what Christ has done. But what connects them to Christ, I think, for us in the New Testament is Jesus connects us with what he's done in the Old Testament was simply throwing themselves up under the mercy of who God is and trusting him.
0: And, and I would just add some more texture on this question. Uh, three things. One, um, human beings are a lot less isolated than we think they are. So several years ago, I was in Mali in West Africa In the middle of nowhere, you know, Mali is where Timbuktu is. It's like the farthest you can get from anything on the planet. I'm out in the middle of the bush with one of our missionaries, and that evening I was there in this village, we watched French soap operas, translated into Italian, on a television run by a generator. During the day, they watched tele-evangelists. In the middle of nowhere. Human beings are a lot less isolated than we think, and I would add, a lot less ignorant than we think. Paul, earlier in Romans 1, talked about all human beings are without excuse because they've had a hunch inside that there's someone somewhere who's bigger than, stronger than me and has maybe made everything, including me. Every human being is accountable for that hunch. And thus, at least is prompted at some point to find out, who that big somebody is. And then I think the other thing I would say is, God is a lot bigger in all of this than we realize. Paul and Nick have always, that sometimes, in the, especially in the Muslim world, it's common for Jesus to break into people's dreams and reveal himself. God will do what's right with every person he has made. He will do what's right. And so I think he's at work in people's lives and in cultures already far beyond what we will ever see and know.
1: I think that's great. Um, this is a, another question that came up that, um, it's actually, we haven't addressed this one before, but how do we speak with so much conviction that Christianity is the one true religion? What if we die and the one true religion is it actually Islam? Do you believe that we will go to hell?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting when you think about uh, the system of Christianity, which is radical grace and almost every other religion is on the basis of works. So if I'm a good Christian and I live out my faith, I'm going to do good works. I'm not doing them to get me to heaven, but I'm going to live or we're going to live a very, very different lifestyle. So in one sense, even though I'm not Muslim, if I've lived out my Christian faith well, I'll be okay because it's based on works. And Christians, if they live out their faith, do good works, they just don't think those good works are saving them. However, if I'm not a Christian, I'm not trusting Christ, my good works don't count because that's not what saves us. It's radical grace. So that's when being disconnected from God for all eternity is the problem. Um, I'm not that convinced that we have to convince everybody that Jesus is the only way. That's not my goal. My goal is just to get them to know Jesus. You're not saved on whether you think Jesus is the only way or not. You're saved on whether you're trusting Jesus. So I really never try to go after that. I'm not trying to prove to everybody in the world that Christianity is exclusive. I'm just trying to prove to everybody in the world that Jesus will save them. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and I, would, I would add, in love, I think part of what being a witness for Christ means is also understanding some of what other religions are about. I think that's a responsibility that we have. For instance, in, in Islam, the main motivation in Islam is Fear. Fear. Uh, I remember hearing Philip Yancey, I've not confirmed this myself as I haven't read the Koran cover to cover, but I heard Philip Yancey once say that the word love does not appear, appear in the Koran in reference to God. So part of uh, understanding what the other religions are about is learning some of that and then helping people to compare, you know, reality and what they see in the world with what the religions actually teach and say.
1: And I think kind of building off of that, another question that came up several times is how do we, how do you someone lovingly tell someone that Jesus is the only way, um, especially I think the, the question was in reference to our current cultural climate, political climate, it can be a pretty con- controversial statement to make. So how do we tell that to someone in a loving way while still maintaining um, our belief in, in truth?
2: I'd just give him Larry's sermon.
1: Yeah, right. Go for it.
0: I do think there's something to be said of that. I, I, and you, you alluded to this earlier, Nick. I think the back door is the best way. I think getting to hear what people already think, what they think about world religions, and letting them kind of talk enough to hang themselves a little bit, um, and exploring their beliefs, and then showing that they might come up short in areas... Uh, is a great way to to, uh, expose people to the Jesus way.
2: There'll be people in heaven who are surprised that Jesus was the only way. Hmm. Because that's that's not determinative of your relationship with him. So just get people enamored with Jesus and let the rest kind of happen as they grow and learn.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, the goal here is not to win an argument. It's not even to disprove their religion. The goal is to win a friend and show them who, who jesus is it's relationship so
1: yeah, i think that's really good um one that just came through um is is there any world religion whose evidence is more than its own sacred text does christianity have more than just the bible to point to as truth uh <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> Uh, we don't believe Christianity is true because of the Bible. We believe Christianity is true because of the resurrection of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And to argue for the resurrection of Jesus, I don't need to look to the Bible as sacred text. I just need to look at the Bible as historical documents. So the foundation for our faith, in my mind, you, you may come out this different, is really Jesus and his resurrection. And I can look at that simply from an historical perspective. And, and we get confused. The Bible is a sacred text because that's how we esteem the literature. But before it's sacred text, it, it's historical documents. And I, I think there's a lot that legitimizes them as historical documents. And that's all I need to get to the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus is what I hinge my faith on. Yeah,
0: that's true. And that'll be week four, right? Uh, yeah, we're going to talk Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about
2: uh, how can we trust the Bible. Uh, on week four, yeah.
0: I would say maybe the only other religion that's close to having impact is uh, Hinduism because of the Beatles.
1: <laughs> <No>. Just kidding.
0: <laughs> I'm getting <laughs> weird. Yeah,
1: Someone did text in can, when is Larry going to update his pop culture references? So I don't know. I know, what, yeah, I know. So, can, so, can I answer this uh, one? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, th- and then there was, a, there was one more um, that we wanted to hit as well. I want to answer this because I've been asked it a couple times what's the difference
2: between God Allah and other gods of the different major faiths one of the interesting differences is well first of all we see God as personal Hinduism and some of the Eastern faiths would not put that under the criteria but between Islam and Christianity and Judaism is this notion of the Trinity What's really interesting is if you don't have... We we talk about the Trinity is very hard to understand, and it is, but it's not hard to understand the implications of the Trinity. So in Islam, because it's monotheistic and God is a singularity and it's not in relationship, then the heart of Islam is power, Hmm. which goes back to why you come to Islam under fear. Hmm. Because the God we believe in is one in essence, but three in persons, there's relationship. So at the heart of Christianity is this notion of love. Yes, we say God is all-powerful, but what we gravitate to mostly and esteem the most is that we have a God who who loves, and that love starts in his essence with himself, in a sense, in the confines of the Trinity, Trinity, and then works itself out. That's fundamentally different, and that's why Islam and Christianity looks so different is because their understanding of the nature of God is so radically different. Well said. Uh, Could be a lot more said on that, but we'll leave it there.
0: (laughs) We've got so many good questions from the three services that we're actually talking about on the last week. Maybe we'll have a pizza lunch and dive into some of this more deeply if you want to plan on that the last Sunday in April and uh, have some more Q&A and discussion time. So stay tuned. Great questions, thank you, thank you so much.